0: Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist on America's web radio and you are a source for all the latest mental health-related news. Anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. This is the show where you will hear about all of that first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental illness and also trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome to this evening show. This is the Wednesday, June the fourth edition of Psychiatry Today. And you know, every week on the show I try to talk about what's current and Sometimes the task is not very pleasant if there is a lot of mental health related news that is very serious and very disturbing. And unfortunately, this week is one of those weeks. Again, I am going to be talking a lot tonight about a mental health related mass shooting. It seems like I've been doing this way, way too much the past few years. Uh, but unfortunately, there are a few signs that I'll be able to stop doing this anytime soon. Uh, I don't take any pleasure in talking about this type of thing. But on the other hand, I feel strongly that if I'm going to have a show about mental health issues and talk about current things related to mental health, uh, I can't very well do that without discussing these incidents uh, because they do have a lot of implications for mental health policy, if not mental health treatment. And you know each time one of these things happens, that is a mass shooting committed by a mentally ill person. The speculation is well, no, finally, the general public has had enough. Finally, politicians are going to do something about it, and we won't have to keep talking about this. Well, you know what happens is in the immediate aftermath of an incident like this, a lot is talked about, but unfortunately, nothing ever seems to change. With this latest incident, there may be some changes in the local jurisdiction, that is the state where this tragedy took place, and only time will tell, but clearly more is going to have to change, and not just in one state, but nationwide, for me to be able to stop having to talk to you about incidents like this. Well, it was on a Friday night when Elliot Rogers' mother got a call from her son's therapist that he had emailed a ranting manifesto about going on a deadly rampage. The mother went to her son's YouTube channel and found the video in which he threatens to kill people. She alerted authorities and set off frantically with her ex-husband to Santa Barbara. By the time they arrived, it was too late. Their son had killed six people, and then himself. It was the second time in recent months that Roger's mother tried to intervene. In April, she had called one of her son's counselors after seeing bizarre videos he had posted on YouTube Though not the disturbing one, he posted shortly before the killings. The counselor called a mental health service, which then called police. Santa Barbara County Sheriff's deputies, who showed up at Roger's doorstep to check on his mental health, however, weren't aware of any videos, according to the department's spokeswoman. How this lack of communication could have taken place is just undescribably, uh, incredibly, um, I mean, you, you cannot fathom how a howling error like that could have taken place. That the legal authorities were not informed of and did not see these videos because they concluded after visiting with him that this well-mannered, if shy, young man – posed no risk. Sheriff Bill Brown has defended the deputy's actions, but the case highlights the challenges that police face in assessing the mental health of adults, particularly those with no history of violent breakdowns, institutionalizations, or serious crimes. He said, obviously, looking back on this, it's a very tragic situation, and we certainly wish that we could turn the clock back and maybe change some things. At the time deputies interacted with him, he was able to convince them that he was okay. Just a spectacular excuse for such a howling error. Now, it's not clear when the mother's concern about the videos was conveyed to the deputies, to be fair. And an email to the counselor uh, also didn't serve to clarify this issue. Doris A. Fuller, executive director of the Virginia-based Treatment Advocacy Center, said California law has provisions that permit emergency psychiatric evaluations of individuals who pose a serious threat. But that provision was never triggered Roger's family has disclosed their son was under the care of therapists. Now, Ms. Fuller said, once again, we are grieving over deaths and devastation caused by a young man who was sending up red flags for danger that failed to produce intervention in time to avert tragedy. In this case, the red flags were so big the killer's parents had called police and yet the system failed. Now, Roger had written a sort of manifesto, and he said that the police asked whether he had suicidal thoughts, and he was able to convince them that he was fine. He also said he was relieved that they didn't search his apartment, because if they had, they would have uncovered the cache of weapons that he planned to use, and eventually did use, in the rampage in Isla Vista, California. He posted at least 22 YouTube videos. He wrote in his manifesto that he uploaded most of his videos in the week leading up to April 26, when he originally planned to carry out his attacks. He postponed his plan after catching a cold. And this is to quote deceased killer. On the week leading up to the date I set for the day of retribution, I uploaded several videos onto YouTube in order to express my views and feelings to the world, though I don't plan on uploading my ultimate video until minutes before the attack, because on that video I will talk about exactly why I'm doing this, he wrote. It is extremely chilling to read this because it shows that he had planned this out well in advance and just goes to emphasize the missed opportunities to stop him before he committed these killings. In the final video posted before the attack, he sits in his black BMW where he committed the crimes from and where he eventually took his own life. He sits there in the car in sunset light and appears to be acting out scripted lines and planned laughs. He says, I'll take great pleasure in slaughtering all of you. And in his videos and in his writings, he voices his contempt for everyone, from his roommates to the human race reserving special hate for two groups, the women he says kept him a virgin for all of his 22 years, and the men they chose instead. The rampage played out largely as he sketched it in public postings. He said he would start by, quote, silently killing as many people as I can around Isla Vista by luring them into my apartment through some form of trickery, unquote, he said he would knock them out with a hammer and slit their throats. Now, <clears> throat> two of the three first victims were his roommates, and they were found in his apartment. Around 9.30 p.m. of the evening of the shooting, the rampage began. It lasted about 10 minutes. He shot and killed three at random, injured 13 more either with gunshots or with the car that he used as a battering ram against bicyclists and skateboarders. Deputies found three semi-automatic handguns along with 400 unspent rounds in his car. It should be noted that all were purchased legally. Now, a closer look at the issue of the uh, deputies and what information they didn't have for the rampage. Again, they showed up at his apartment last month to check on his mental health, or rather in April, I forgot now it's June. Uh, so they checked on his mental health. They had not seen the online videos in which he was threatening suicide and violence, even though these were the recordings that prompted his parents to call the authorities. And by the time law enforcement finally did see these videos, it was too late. It's not clear why they didn't see the videos. Uh, an attorney for the family said the family called the police after being alarmed by the videos, quote, regarding suicide and the killing of people that their son had been posting. All right, well, it's time to take our first commercial break. Unfortunately, we have a lot more to talk about where it concerns the shooting and its implications. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break.
1: This is Michael Gonneau with Insight to Israel. Every day the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory. Ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Ganneau. Thank you. God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Healthcare Consumerism Radio. Learn, connect, share. Join us every Friday at 11 o'clock to learn all those confusing issues around healthcare, Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid.
0: We'll help you find the answers, help you stay in compliance. Join us.
2: This is America's the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, with you. in, we are talking about the shooting that took place in East La Vista, California. The UC Santa Barbara student, Elliot Roger, who suffered from mental illness, was under the care of a therapist posted videos boasting of what he was about to do and was not able to be stopped in time. Because many of the videos were removed from YouTube and then re-added in the week leading up to the killings, it's unclear which of the videos alarmed his family or whether others were reported that were not uploaded again. Uh, But regardless... The problem is law enforcement did not see them in time to intervene. His mother got a call from her son's therapist shortly before the shooting started that he had emailed his ranting manifesto. It was then that the mother found the YouTube video in which he threatened to kill people. She alerted authorities and set off frantically with her ex-husband, but The deadly rampage had taken place by the time they got there. Now, again, the videos give some very uh, chilling comments from the killer. Uh, The video that was posted that Friday and then taken down the next day by YouTube, the message saying that it violated the site's term of service, Uh, Mr. Rogers said, I don't know why you girls are so repulsed by me. He's describing his loneliness and frustration at never having had sex with or even kissed a girl. He says, I am polite, I am the ultimate gentleman, and yet you girls never give me a chance. I don't know why. And of the men he sees as rivals, he said, I deserve girls much more than all those slobs. And... Then he says that that after his rampage, you will see final, you will finally see that I am in truth the superior one, the true alpha male. And his first stop on his rampage was the Alpha Phi sorority, which he had called, quote, the hottest sorority of UCSB. I know exactly where their house is and I've sat outside it in my car to stalk them. Many times. No one answered the door after one to two minutes of aggressive pounding, but soon he shot three women who were standing nearby, killing two of them. He then drove to a deli where he walked inside and shot and killed another UC Santa Barbara student. The rampage would continue as Roger drove across Isla Vista shooting at some and running down others with his car, twice exchanging gunfire with deputies. He was shot in the hip, but the gunshot to the head that killed him was thought to be self-inflicted. Authorities had had three contacts with Rogers in, in the past year, including one case in which he claimed to be beaten, but deputies suspected he was the aggressor. Now it was on April 30th that officials went to his East La Vista apartment to check on him at the request of his family. But deputies reported back that he was shy, polite, having a difficult social life, but did not need to be taken for mental health reasons. Now he had quoted, he was quoted from his manifesto as saying, if they had demanded to search my room, That would have ended everything. For a few horrible seconds, I thought it was all over. Now, family attorney said the Roger family had called police after being alarmed by the YouTube videos. And in the aftermath of all of this, California lawmakers are trying to initiate some action that they feel somehow will make a difference in terms of incidents like this. Uh, to, for example, better train law enforcement officials to recognize and deal with mental illness in the aftermath of this bloody rampage. The killing spree raised questions about whether police have adequate training to spot warning signs of violence after it emerged that the deputies had been there, evaluated him, and left without doing anything. California Democrats, hoping to improve the ability of police to spot warning signs, renewed a call to spend $12 million on better training for police on such issues as part of a broader measure seeking increased funding for mental health services in California's criminal justice system. I'm not sure why the article about this mentions that only California Democrats were interested in this. You would think this is a bipartisan issue. The speculation is that better police training might have helped the deputies recognize warning signs At Rogers apartment. The killings have also renewed calls for lighter firearms restrictions, sorry, tighter, excuse me, tighter firearms restrictions in the most populous United States state, California, where polls show that most residents believe government is not doing enough to regulate access to guns. Another measure, which is to be introduced in the state assembly, would allow friends, neighbors, and family members to report to a judge if they fear a person might commit a violent act. The judge could then issue an injunction barring that person from owning guns. Had such a measure been in place when Roger's mother called police in April, they might have checked to see whether he had purchased firearms or searched his apartment. But with the end of their legislative session, looming California lawmakers were clear they were not planning to introduce sweeping new gun laws. Lawmakers passed several gun control measures last year after a 2012 massacre at a Connecticut elementary school but several were vetoed by Democratic Governor Jerry Brown. Brown said the strictest one, which would have classified any rifle with a removable magazine as an assault weapon, was was an, quote, infringement on gun owners' rights, unquote. And a spokesman for the governor said he has not since changed his views. <clears throat> It, it does seem remarkable that somehow or another law enforcement, uh, were not informed of the YouTube videos, uh, and did not look at them in, as part of their investigation of this young man. Um, it's, if there's any common thread of all these mass shootings by mentally ill people, it's that they leave obvious traces. There are postings on Facebook, YouTube. Um, There are clues that they left that if they had been um, heeded to might have prevented these tragedies. Now, the legislators are trying to do something about this, um, but there are gaps in the mental health laws in California, like many other states as well. Uh, California has a law intended to identify and confine dangerously unstable people before they can do harm. It allows authorities to hold people in a mental hospital for up to 72 hours for observation. To trigger it, there must be evidence a person is suicidal intent on hurting others, or so gravely disabled as to be unable to care for himself. It's not clear whether involuntarily committing Roger would have averted the bloodshed. In many cases, people must be set free after the 72 hours are up. Here in Georgia, we have such a law as well. Uh, the way it works is after the 72 hours, or actually it's really three business days, it's not even just 72 hours, the hospital holding the person involuntarily would either have to let them go or they would have to file for a court hearing to allow a judge to decide whether the person uh, can be discharged from the hospital or not, and then once uh, the Hearing before the judge is applied for, the hospital can keep that person against their will up until the time the hearing takes place. But this is the debate and a quote from Tony Belize, a retired deputy director of the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. That's the debate. That's the issue. Liberty versus forced treatment. He said, after Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after things like this, the usual arguments come up. On the gun side, it's take all the guns away, the extremists say, or give everybody a gun. And it's the same thing with the mental illness side. It's make the laws tougher, hospitalize everybody, throw away the key. That's great until it's your kid. Well, he has a point. Um, Neither extreme is proper. Uh, and it wouldn't be safe if everybody had guns anytime for any reason, but likewise people can't just be locked up in a mental institution without a very good reason and without proper uh, evidence and justification. Um, as usual, the shooting leaves a lot of questions unanswered. It's very tragic that, uh, again, there were preventable deaths, um, including the death of the person himself who committed the crimes. And uh, who knows at this early stage what lessons will or will not be learned from what happened. Uh, for me, the bottom line is for law enforcement, please look at any online postings of someone that you have been told may be a danger somehow. Uh, That has to be the obvious lesson learned, and if it isn't, to me, it just compounds the tragedy. have to take another commercial break. We'll be right back after that. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution.
2: This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. This is America's Web com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay here, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. There was other mental health related news this past week to two weeks, and we're going to start getting to some of that. Now, this next article is about a study that shows there is an antidepressant that eases menopause-related symptoms. The antidepressant venlafaxine, which is the generic name for the drug formerly sold under the brand name Effexor, is supposedly nearly as effective as estrogen therapy in reducing menopause-related hot flashes and night sweats, according to a new study. Now, this is not the first time the subject of using Effexor to treat menopause-related hot flashes has been an issue. In fact, it, it goes back many, many years, but until some actual medical research was done to see if this would work, it was just something that doctors tried and gave to patients and sometimes found helpful. In other words, it was sort of clinical lore or uh, anecdotal evidence. There was no hard data. There have been other studies previous to this one. This is not the first one. Estrogen therapy is considered the gold standard treatment for hot flashes and night sweats, but is used at the lowest possible doses due to potential risks associated with the treatment. These risks include blood clots and an increased risk of certain cancers. The new findings say uh, that they provide critical data for physicians and women making treatment decisions for hot flashes and night sweats. The study authors say that their data show that first-line hormonal and non-hormonal pharmacological treatments are well-tolerated and effective options for alleviating symptoms. Hot flashes and night sweats affect up to 80% of women in midlife and are the primary menopause-related symptoms leading menopausal women to seek medical attention. The study included almost 350 women who were either entering menopause or had been through menopause, all of the women had hot flashes and night sweats. They were randomly assigned to receive either low-dose oral estrogen estradiol, low-dose venlafaxine extended release, uh, formerly known as Effexor XR, or an inactive placebo. After eight weeks, hot flashes and night sweats decreased by nearly 53% among women on the estrogen therapy. In women taking the Effexor XR, those symptoms dropped by nearly 48%, almost as much as the estrogen therapy. But almost 29% of those taking a placebo also had improvement in their symptoms, uh, clearly much less than the almost half for either the Effexor XR or the estrogen. So compared to the placebo, estrogen therapy reduced the number of hot flashes or night sweats by an average of 2.3 per day. Effexor XR reduced the number of these symptoms by 1.8 per day. The study was published on May 26th. In Journal of the AMA Internal Medicine, the study was funded by the United States National Institutes of Health, and so there was no bias whatsoever from any pharmaceutical company, either one selling estradiol therapy or selling a generic version of Effexor XR. It was the first one to compare estrogen therapy and the non-hormonal treatment, showing that the Effexor XR offers an effective alternative to hormone therapy. One expert called for further research on the finding and was quoted as saying, as expected, the study shows the best relief from estradiol. However, venlafaxine, a non-hormonal treatment for hot flashes, was also beneficial. Although this is a small study, larger studies are worth pursuing. Well, whether or not these larger studies that that expert suggested wind up being done or not, and regardless of what the results of those studies, if they're done, wind up being, I want to just give you ladies who may be thinking of asking your doctor for a trial of or XR, or the generic for it, to have some information, to think twice before you do that. Now, <clears throat> I want to emphasize, I am not going to discourage you from taking it if that's what you want to try, if you're afraid to try the estrogen because of the risks of blood clots and certain cancers, if um, you and your GYN have discussed the risks and benefits and in, the estrogen therapy doesn't seem to be a good risk for you, um, you may wind up talking to them about the effexor or XR or the generic. But as a psychiatrist who has prescribed effexor or XR ever since it came on the market, and I still prescribe it to some patients, I want you to know the facts. Effexor or XR has some very potentially serious side effects. The worst problem with it are the discontinuation side effects. Now, many people mistakenly call the side effects that I'm talking about withdrawal symptoms. There is no such thing as withdrawal from drugs that uh, don't act a certain way on the central nervous system. Withdrawal applies to addictive chemicals such as alcohol, sedatives, painkillers, cocaine, heroin, things like that. But when it comes to Effexor XR, uh, the side effects are more accurately termed discontinuation syndromes. And what happens is, if you were to abruptly stop taking Effexor XR, you could potentially have some very serious side effects, uh, not the least of which is sort of feeling very swimmy-headed. It's kind of like motion sickness. Uh, people feel dizzy even from just turning their head from side to side, and there can be extreme nausea. Uh, some people have described it almost as feeling as if they've had the flu, only without the cough or runny nose or sore throat. And and then there are these very strange sensations in the head that, for lack of a more accurate medical term, people call brain zaps. And these brain zaps are sort of like a buzzing or electrical shock type sensation in the head. And uh, I know it sounds bizarre, but... um, you know no one really knows what causes this or what else to call it so it's called a brain zap now the scary thing is that this doesn't only happen if you abruptly stop taking effects or XR there's a very broad spectrum of sensitivity to suffering from these side effects I've seen people start to have these discontinuation side effects even if they're only a couple of hours late in taking their daily dose. And uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum, I've seen some people on high doses of FX or XR go away for a weekend and forget to bring their medication with them and come back on Monday and get back on it, and never having felt a thing. And, of course, You have uh, varying reactions uh, in between those two extremes. Uh, But nonetheless, it's a rare person who doesn't have some level of discomfort. Uh, And so it is very difficult to tolerate that if you should miss a dose or be late with a dose or run out uh, before you got it filled. Now, let's ignore the discontinuation side effects for a moment and just look at the side effects of taking effects or XR on a daily basis. It is well known to interfere with sexual functioning and um, in men and in women, but since we're talking about women who may take it for menopause-related symptoms, in women it can decrease sexual desire, and it can also make it difficult to reach orgasm. Uh, and then... While it's not a frequent problem, it may sometimes increase the risk of weight gain. Uh, so, you know, it's certainly not um, a benign medication. Uh, and while that may pale in comparison to the risks of estrogen when you're talking about blood clots and cancer, uh, I certainly want uh, you to consider that there are some potential problems with effects or XR. And I also want to emphasize, I'm not saying so I think the estrogen is preferable. I know there are very serious risks associated with that. Certainly do not want women to have to choose to just suffer with the hot flashes and night sweats either. Just want you to know the facts. Um, The findings of blood clots and, and certain cancers being increased from estrogen therapy, it came out of an extremely large study, uh, the Women's Health Initiative study. But really, I think most experts would tell you that the upshot from all that data is that those risks were mostly because too many women took the estrogen in too high doses and for too long a duration of time. And that most experts now would agree, even in the face of all the scary data from the Women's Health Initiative study, that as long as women take the estrogen therapy for the lowest possible dose and for the shortest period of time to alleviate the night sweats and hot flashes, then it does not substantially increase the risk of blood clots and certain cancers. Uh, so really, again, this is a very important individualized discussion that women should have with their GYN, and maybe the effects or XR would be an appropriate option for you, but I want you to know the facts and the risks entailed with taking that as well. All right, time for another commercial break, and I'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
1: in today's politics it seems as though the constitution gets lost in the mix if you want to brush up on your constitution then join michael conley every wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m for the show our constitution on americaswebradio.com
2: hi this is kate copsey inviting you to listen year-round to america's homegrown veggie show every saturday at 10 a.m privatehealthcareexchanges.com Have you checked out the only online guide where employers, health plans, brokers, and consultants can navigate private exchange and defined contribution markets? Browse privatehealthcareexchanges.com today. The emergence of private health insurance exchanges represents perhaps the most significant shift in how Americans purchase health benefits in years. As employers move their employee population into private exchanges, this trend is on a growth projection into the 2015 benefit year and beyond, according to research published by Allegis Technologies. Visit privatehealthcareexchanges.com today to browse our national searchable directory and for Healthcare Exchange Solutions magazine and newsletter. Be sure to submit your listing for inclusion in this groundbreaking guide at www.privatehealthcareexchanges.com. That's www.privatehealthcareexchanges.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed
0: just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, with you here, and next up on tonight's show, is your long-term pain making you depressed? Did you ever wonder if being depressed or anxious could contribute to your chronic pain? Turns out, as you might have guessed, these feelings could be connected. Studies show that 30 to 50% of people struggling with chronic pain also have a mood disorder, such as depression and anxiety. And in fact, I find it difficult to believe it's uh, not higher than that. So when is pain considered chronic? Pain is chronic if, in general, it lasts longer than three months. This means it extends beyond the usual time for an illness or injury. When it lingers beyond three months, you might consider it a disease in its own right. Chronic pain also carries a hefty price tag. In the United States, chronic pain costs about $600 billion a year in health care costs as well as lost time at work. But does pain cause depression and anxiety or vice versa? In this question of the chicken or the egg, it can work both ways. Pain can cause depression and anxiety. Depression and anxiety can also cause pain. It can create a cycle where one continually worsens the other. For example, someone in pain from an injury may cut back on their activity because they're afraid of being re-injured. If this keeps them from improving their physical condition, they may actually become deconditioned. This also makes the person susceptible to injury. In in another scenario, chronic pain might cause sleep problems, or it can create feelings of helplessness and worthlessness related to work or financial issues. All of this can lead to depression. So how are these overlapping illnesses treated? A comprehensive approach to treatment involves a thorough evaluation to determine what might be contributing to both the pain and the mood disorder. If it's something physical, like arthritis, contributing to pain, treating the pain may improve the depression. Treatment may involve medication, physical therapy, or other therapies, such as nerve blocks. For other cases, it is important to address the psychological aspects with counseling or with medications that may help improve both pain and depression. And you're probably familiar with one particular medication because of the heavy Consumer advertising that it engages in, Cymbalta, helps with both depression and anxiety and pain as well. Now, other options for treating both pain and depression include cognitive behavioral therapy to help patients develop coping skills so they can manage their pain. Relaxation training, which helps reduce the stress response that often worsens pain and increases the symptoms of depression and anxiety. Hypnosis, to help patients reach a relaxed state that may allow for positive suggestions. Exercise and physical activity, which can boost a patient's mood as well as improve pain and function. In fact, there are several studies which show that one particular chronic pain syndrome, fibromyalgia, responds very well to regular exercise. There are self-help groups that provide psychological support for chronic pain sufferers. And finally, there is education available for both the patient and the family from, if not support groups, uh, certain national foundations. It is important for people to treat their pain and their depression both, but also to take part in activities. Rather than focusing on what they cannot do, it is important that patients realize what they can do. If not, then the cycle of pain and depression will continue to spiral downward. And next up on tonight's show, another study having to do with the interface between physical illness and emotion. Hurt feelings may affect blood pressure, well, at least in older, middle-aged women. Uh, Once the study found that women in this group who feel unappreciated by their friends or family may have more than just hurt feelings, their health may take a hit as well. This new research has suggested that women who have unpleasant social experiences may have a higher risk for high blood pressure. Using data from the Health and Retirement Study, researchers studied 1,502 people, 899 women and 603 men, aged 50 and older. The participants did not have high blood pressure when they enrolled in the study in 2006. They were deemed to have high blood pressure if they were on medication to lower their blood pressure or if they had a resting systolic, that's the top number of blood pressure, of 140 or higher or the diastolic, that's the lower number, uh, was 90 or more, 140 over 90, is pretty much the uh, cutoff for high blood pressure, anything that or above. Then the participants were asked to fill out questionnaires about their interactions with friends, family, their spouse or partner, and children. These questions gauged negative interactions. For example, they asked whether these friends and family got on participants' nerves whether they criticized participants or made too many demands. Participants were also asked about positive interactions, such as how much they could rely on friends or relatives and how much they could open up to them. Answers were scored on a range from one, none or never, to four or a lot. After four years the same participants had their blood pressure checked again. In those four years, twenty nine point six percent of participants, or four hundred forty five people, developed high blood pressure. Men, even those who reported negative interactions with others were not likely to develop high blood pressure. It was mainly women who developed high blood pressure, and especially those who between the ages of 51 to 64. Those women who reported negative interactions, such as feeling let down or criticized, were primarily affected when these interactions were with friends or family, but not their partner or their children. The researchers found that for every one unit increase in total average negative interactions reported, there was a 38% increased risk of developing high blood pressure over four years. The study authors noted that high blood pressure was notable in the women considered to be of the sandwich generation who felt demands of aging parents as well as demands of children. Negative social interactions may only aggravate the adverse effects of existing life stressors among individuals in this age group. And again, the blood pressure seemed to be going up when the negative interactions were primarily uh, with friends or family, not so much with their partner or with their children. Researchers found that uh, the risk for high blood pressure increases with age, of course, which may have contributed to the findings. There is a body of evidence in social psychology research suggesting that women care more about and pay more attention to the quality of their relationships. These findings suggest that women are particularly sensitive to negative interactions, which is consistent with his previous work. The study was published on May the 28th in the American Psychological Association journal known as Health Psychology. Lastly on tonight's show, an odd sort of mental health related news. Porn may be messing with your head. Well, that seems fairly obvious, but not in the way you might think. Men who report watching a lot of pornography tend to have less volume and activity in regions of the brain linked to rewards and motivation, according to a new German study, which was published in the Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. It can't say that watching porn caused the decrease in brain matter and activity. It's not clear whether watching the porn leads to the brain changes or whether people born with certain brain types tend to watch more porn. Well, they looked at 64 healthy men between the ages of 21 and 45, admittedly not a very large sample size. They asked them questions about their porn-watching habits. They took images of their brains to measure volume and to see how their brains reacted to pornographic pictures. They found that the volume of the striatum a region that has been associated with reward processing and motivated behavior was smaller the more pornography consumption the participants reported. Also, another brain region that is also part of the striatum and is active when people see sexual stimuli showed less activation the more pornography participants consumed. So I guess the reaction just you know kind of wears off the more if they keep watching. And... <clears throat> What's more, they found that the connection between the striatum and the prefrontal cortex, which is the outer layer of the brain associated with behavior and decision-making, worsened with increased porn watching. I think women wouldn't find that remarkable, that it disconnects men from uh, the main part of their brain. Now, the study can't prove that watching porn caused these changes in the brain, so it can't say that it's actually harmful. They would need longer studies to find that out. And it turns out that any behavior done intensely or long enough may result in changes to the brain. Well, and with that, we're going to wrap up tonight's show. And I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening.
2: This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.